0: I'm a citizen
1: K-Squitters. It's every other Sunday again, and you're listening to Sustainability Now, a bi-weekly K-Squid radio show program focused on environment, sustainability, and social justice in the Monterey Bay region, California, and the world. I'm your host, Ronnie Lipschitz. My guests today are Rebecca Johnson and Allison Young from the San Francisco Academy of Sciences. they are their co-directors of the Center for Biodiversity and Community Science, an academy program that is research and monitoring driven and controlled by local communities and characterized by place-based knowledge, social learning, collective action, and empowerment. Rebecca and Allison, welcome to Sustainability Now. So why don't we start with some basics? What is the California Academy of Sciences? When was it established? By whom? And to what end?
2: Yeah, and this is Rebecca. Maybe maybe I'll go ahead. Just a little warning. Allison and I sound a lot alike, so um, we might say our names um, sometimes. Um, so the, the California Academy of Sciences is a natural history museum in San Francisco. Um, we're lo- currently located in Golden Gate Park. Um, we were founded in 1853 um, in San Francisco by a group of Folks um, at the time. They were all white men, mostly wealthy white men mm-hmm. who um had made their money through the gold rush and through other industries associated with the gold rush and oh. were quite interested in kind of celebrating the biodiversity of California um, and sharing it with the rest of the world.
0: Mm-hmm. So they
2: wanted to create an academy to share resources, with, and at the, in those times, those days, it really meant sharing a library and a space and creating a place where they could talk about nature and geology, actually, and many of these men were quite interested in the mineral resources of California as nice. well. Um, so, yeah, they founded it as a place to talk about to study and explore and celebrate California biodiversity. And when I mean, Allison and I talk, yeah, go ahead.
1: No, no, I was going to say, I mean, what you know, to think about these guys as being concerned about biodiversity is a little bit startling or surprising. I mean, what what did they mean? What did they mean by biodiversity?
2: Um, I think if you read some of our founding documents, they talk mm-hmm. about the flora and fauna, right? Uh-huh. So they talk about plants and animals. Huh. And um, they recognized that the diversity that they saw here was quite different than that they had seen or experienced in in other places in the United States, um, Uh mostly the East Coast. Uh And um, they wanted to talk about it and they wanted to find a a group of like-minded people to talk about it. I mean, it wasn't until a few years later, maybe even closer to 20 years later, that we had a public-facing part of the academy. Mm-hmm. So originally, it was founded as a place to talk about nature, mm-hmm. to talk about plants and animals and minerals and the state, and then we added on a public museum.
1: That's interesting. Um, and so, what's the what's the current mission of the academy, and what is its balance among research, education, and activism?
3: Yeah, so um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we uh, we have have just recently changed our mission. Um, We have had a new mission in the last year and a half or so, two years. Um, It's to regenerate the natural world through science, learning and collaboration. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah, you know, the balance of research and education I would say is like almost equal at the Academy. We have a super active research division where our curators and fellow scientists, um, you know travel throughout California actually and throughout the world. Uh, documenting species and describing species and you know, trying to understand the relationships between species. Um, but being a public museum, then obviously we have a very, very active education uh, program as well that have you know not only the exhibits and what you learn when you come to the academy itself, but uh, tons of education programs that um, are reaching teachers and students, you know, out in the community where they are, as well as lots of online, you know, to reach people no, no matter where they are in the world um, with our education programs. You know, in terms of activism, the academy is something we're starting to lean into more um, as an entire, like, academy, uh, where in the past, you know, there might have been, you um, you know, bills that are coming up that, you know, backed based on the science, there are things that we've backed, but we are actually taking now a more active approach and in, in actually advocacy is one of our values now, um, which mm-hmm. it hasn't mm-hmm. been in the past, is mm-hmm. one of our new values of the academy. And so we're still kind of um, working as an academy to figure out kind of like, what's the best way to go about having like an academy wide advocacy policy. But, you know, mainly it's thinking about um, what are those things that we can stand up for that are based in science that we should take a stand for um, and that we can also like activate our members and you know community around as well.
1: Uh-huh. Uh huh. Well, you know, when I meant said activism, I was actually thinking more about this community science angle, right? Um, as opposed to politics. I mean, I think you know it's great that you're you're paying attention to that. Um, and of course, the image of of science, right, is that it's just facts, mm-hmm. and and it doesn't take a position on politics. I mean, we've learned. In the last few years for sure that that is not the case. Um, But it's more it's more has to do with this community engagement. So you're both co-directors of the Center for Biodiversity and Community Science at the Academy. Um, So what does the center do and and what do you do at the center?
2: Um, Ahead, so this, the Center for um, Biodiversity and Community Science is part of our research division. So Alison and I co-direct the center, we're both also scientists. And what we do is we work to engage people, wherever they are, all kinds of different people in making and sharing observations of nature, making and sharing biodiversity observations. Um, we use an app called iNaturalist to help um, to gather those data And once people take pictures and share the pictures of the nature that they're um, encountering, it's really our job to take those pictures and help um, mobilize them collectively because they are data um, to help answer questions, um, science questions, um, conservation questions, help um, inform policy. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we do. And the kind of data we collect together with people where species are, when is very similar to the core of natural history museum collections data so at our natural history museum we have over close to 50 million natural history museum specimens Mm
0: -hmm. and all of those
2: are physical things right? right but collect but associated with those physical things are the date it was collected the time the place who collected it and where. And those core bits of information are in pictures that we take now with our smartphones and and share. And so we're collecting similar data with people, um, you know, school kids, families, children, adults when they're hiking, like anyone um, who sees something alive and wants to um, share it, find out what it is and then um, help contribute to this this effort. Um, They're all collecting data that help us understand where plants and animals are now, and Mm -hmm. how that's changing. And Mm -hmm. we can compare Mm -hmm. that to what we know about the past from our collections, and help understand what changes we're seeing now.
1: And so what what are your roles then with the center? And, And more broadly, you know, at the academy, I have the question here, you know, what are your specializations? So talk about that as well.
3: Yeah, um, so Rebecca and I are actually both marine biologists uh, (laughs) where uh, Rebecca is a uh, nudibranch specialist, a nudibranch taxonomist, so sea slugs, Mm -hmm. um, while I uh, am an intertidal ecologist. Mm -hmm. Um, And so uh, our roles in the Center for Biodiversity and Community Science, you know, when we first, when we first started working together, when we were like put together and and kind of given this like Command to you know, do some community science out there. Um, we uh, basically worked on designing kind of programs that people could come to and you know document biodiversity together. Mm-hmm. Um, so we started a program actually in the tide pools down by Half Moon Bay because um, mm-hmm. that's you know advances our and you know curiosity and the questions that we have.
2: Yeah. Um, we
3: also started uh, we did started a terrestrial project up on Mount Tamalpais at the time as mm-hmm. well. And through time, this has kind of uh, evolved where uh, we basically kind of our roles, kind of the core of what we do in community science is to design um, and run events and campaigns and build the partnerships that support those Mm -hmm. um, where people are making and sharing biodiversity observations. Mm -hmm. You know, Rebecca uh, mentioned iNaturalist, which is another actually separate department at the academy, but they're based at the academy, which is this app and this platform that we use. Um, And uh, we really see ourselves as kind of giving people reasons why they should be going out and documenting biodiversity. Um, It's one of those things that. Some people are going to find that on their own. They're going to find iNaturalist because they've always been looking for something where they can like share their observations of nature because they're super into it already. But a lot of folks, you know, they need to be given a reason. Like why, why should I be documenting my biodiversity, local biodiversity? How do I do it? Like, what are those things I should be looking for? Um, and so we really uh, think of our role as kind of, you know, designing like the reasons, giving people reasons and meeting other people who are interested um, in nature as well.
1: What exactly is community science? I mean, you've talked about it already, right? But I, I'm curious about the, the theory behind it. And I, I have a, a question here about the nature of data and you know, and it's how, how it's collected and what's considered quality data, right? And and I want to come back to that later, but let's start with you know this question of. What exactly is community science?
2: So we use the term community science to describe the work we do, which Mm -hmm. is working together with people Mm -hmm. to do science, to collect data, and to to use those data to answer questions. Um, It's a little tricky because community science can mean something else, right? So the term community science has also been used to describe community-driven research, where communities have questions, usually wow. around environmental injustice.
0: Right, and right. they
2: have a question and they look to partner with um, academic or professional researchers to help answer those questions, usually um, you know, to help with methods, but also to give some like academic weight to community concerns. Unfortunately, that is often needed. So the term community science has been used um, in the environmental justice field to describe that kind of work. It's also been used in the field of public health to describe similar Mm -hmm. um, community-driven efforts. Mm -hmm. And the work that Allison and I do, you know, until was originally described as citizen science, right? Like, um, well, actually museums like ours have been working with non-professionals or amateurs since they were founded. Right. I mean, in fact, those well, men that I talked about, they were all they right, were all right. amateurs. Yeah. None yeah. of them were paid to do that work. The professionalization right. of science is actually newer than the like doing science, right? So making it a profession. The fact that I can be a professional scientist is newer than but but the academy actually, when we were founded in 18 1853, did invite the participation of women. And that was actually oh, very yeah. um progressive mm-hmm, at the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were lots of things about that founding that were not progressive, right? No. All these wealthy white men that had time taking advantage of, you know, California laws that were removed, remove native peoples from their lands to be able to explore. Like there are lots of things that weren't very progressive, but including women as equal partners in that research was something that was quite great. So we, when we first founded our department, we actually were called um, the citizen science department. And this was the term that was used um, in the academic field to describe citizens of the world, right, working together on a scientific endeavor. But but the term citizen is loaded and of problematic. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, if one person feels excluded because they're not a citizen of the United States, um, then we don't want to run a program like that. Our program is for everyone. Yeah, and so... Yeah. We changed the name of our work and started using community science, but we actually, we did, we changed it a little later than many of our, our colleagues, because of that, we didn't want to co-opt a term that's been used in the environmental justice community. Mm -hmm. Um, But Mm -hmm. you can look on our website and we wrote a piece about the change that, that we made. I um, I saw
1: it. Yeah. 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 So Uh,
2: more and more people are, are referring to the kind of work we do as community science.
1: You're listening to sustainability now, I'm Ronnie Lipschitz, and I'm speaking with Rebecca Johnson and Allison Young, co-directors of the Center for Biodiversity and Community Science at the California Academy of Sciences. I wanted wanted to ask some questions um, about the data collection How does, I mean, how does the scientific community regard community science in the sense of, you know, where people collect is not the result of some sort of careful inspection of sites. It's, it's really where people are.
3: So first of all, there's lots of different types of community science, right? So there are ones that are like our programs, which are just, um, you know, sending people out to collect data points, like, you know, where, where is nature now? Um, can you go and take photographs of species? There are other uh, community science programs where actually volunteers go through really deep training before they can even volunteer, um, you know, where you, they, there is a lot of uh, scientific rigor in training those volunteers. Um, and there's not I'm not going to say that one type of community science is better than the other. Like our type can engage more people because the barrier to entry is much lower. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah then you know you it is very messy data um, but you get a lot of it right yeah, <laughs> so sure. yeah.
0: with,
3: with big data sources it's it's easier to kind of weed out that noise um, and that's actually something that we do in our in our work um, you know we were saying that Rebecca and I kind of run kind of run the community science side of things but we have data scientists in our Center for biodiversity and community science that work to you know understand those biases and analyze the data and model them in such a way where we actually are able to kind of uh, pick up the, the, the trends out of the larger data set. So in terms of, you know, how professional scientists see community science, you know, part of it is, um, there has definitely been growing acceptance and I'd say it's much more accepted now than it was 10 years ago, um, for sure. Especially because so many people now have demonstrated the power, you know, especially in our type of community science where you have so many people out and documenting nature, just the, the resulting data is just so useful um, you really just can't ignore it. Like it's been used already to answer so many questions. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and then other types of projects have, uh, you know, other types of methods that would help also validate those sorts of, of, of data that those uh, community scientists are collecting as well. Um, luckily for us, you know, since we use the iNaturalist platform, iNaturalist has also evolved over the time that we've been using it. And now it actually has, um, it has artificial intelligence or co- computer uh, vision that actually mm-hmm. will mm-hmm. Um, suggest identifications, mm-hmm. and then the wonderful thing too is because we have all these people who are out making and sharing observations, all of those people can also help on the identification side too. So it's not like there's like a team of scientists sitting in a room like iding all these photos that come in, um, but the community is there. They can also you know they can correct misidentifications, they can validate you know the the computer uh, computer learning uh, identifications things like that as well. Um, so it's often, um, you know, we relate it because Rebecca said, it's the same sort of information that's like in our collections. Um, but if there's like a misidentification in our collections, that's way harder to change than a misidentification on iNaturalist. You know, you have to have someone who like knows those species who happens right. to come to our collections, right, who finds right, the right, right jars or find, you know, and then like changes the identification on the on the label that, which then has to get into the database. Um, having it public on iNaturalist means that uh, those, that identification process, even if it's wrong in the beginning, can be mm-hmm, updated mm-hmm,
1: so much faster. That's mm-hmm. well, interesting. I mean, it, when you, you, while you're talking, I was thinking about the way in which uh, data scientists use various kinds of trends and things on social media, for example, mm-hmm. to try and you know make statements about what's going on. And I mean, I hadn't really thought about that, but that of course led to at least to another question, which is, to do it you have to have a smartphone do you do you see any kind of of bias in terms of who's sending in data and and for instance where the data are collected
2: yeah that's a that's a really great question so so you can use the iNaturalist app and submit photos using your smartphone and that's how most people right, do it but right. you can also use a digital camera right so you can make observations using a camera you don't have to have a smartphone Mm-hmm. Um, usually actually people that are using um cameras have like really fancy technical cameras to get sure. pictures of things like yeah. birds or like right. underwater right. 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 Um, but but for sure there are biases in the the data that are collected you know there are biases in the the things that our t- people take pictures of right like you know i study nudibranchs or sea slugs they're like super beautiful and really brightly colored when people go to the tide pools and they find those they're more likely to take pictures of nudibranchs than they mm-hmm. are of barnacles mm-hmm. right i mean barnacles are awesome but they're not as photogenic right as a nudibranch and so um what things people take pictures of varies and it varies on the individual like some people yeah, some person might love barnacles more than anything that's all they take <laughs> pictures of, right? so so it definitely it definitely varies um you know there are biases about where people go um, right you know right. people are more likely to take go to places that are near roads or near cities um that have trails Right. People are more likely to make observations on on the weekend than right. they are during right. the week, right? right? And so, so these um, these biases are are throughout the data. Um, you know, people are more likely to go to parks or na- natural areas than they are to like go to the middle of a city, right, to take pictures of nature. But there's nature everywhere, and we need those data. And so, that's one of the things that that we try to kind of. Um, mitigate, I guess, for some of those biases on both ends of our programming, right? So we design programs and campaigns to get people to go to certain places and take pictures of certain things and oh, encourage them okay. to take pictures of everything, right? Mm-hmm. Not just, you know, the really beautiful butterfly but also like that grass that it's next to or the other plants that you, the plants that you see. And then on the data science side, you know we've had really amazing data scientists on our team Gio Rapociolo who now works for NatureServe, which is an amazing organization, um, design a way, like a recipe basically, to combat a bunch of the biases that you see in community collected data. Mm
0: -hmm. So instead
2: of like some of the programs that Allison was talking about that have these, um, you know, transects and quadrats and like rigorous protocols on the front end, like most professional, you know, ecological monitoring or other kind of surveying does, we do the kind of cleanup on the back end uh-huh. and like kind of take all comers hmm. and then I kind of try to work, work it on the back end. Um, that's,
1: that's, that's quite interesting. Um, well, you've been talking about iNaturalist. So why don't you say some more about, about that and, you know, maybe where people can, listeners can look, you know, to sign up.
3: Yeah. Um, so iNaturalist, uh You can find it on the web at inaturalist.org or in whatever app store that you use um, under iNaturalist if you're interested in checking it out. Um, So yeah, it's the platform that we use and the type of community science that we do that basically allows uh, people anywhere to make and share their observations of nature. Um, The primary way that people do that is by taking photographs because it's really easy to take photographs of of a lot of things, which is really nice, but you can also do things like record sounds. So it's really documenting organisms and evidence of those organisms. Um, It also doesn't necessarily have to be things that are alive. People take pictures of feathers or tracks or shells they find on the beach as well. Um, But basically it's a way for people to, Make and share those observations get help with identifications, which is really nice. You can also then explore all the data that anyone's seen anywhere. So if you have a favorite park and you wanna see like what people have seen in that park, you can zoom in there or you can, you know, look at all the data from the entire world. All the data is open, which is really nice as well so that everyone can use it to answer the questions that they might have around about nature. Um, And uh, iNaturalist is part of the California Academy of Sciences um, where we work. It's also uh, co-owned by the National Geographic. Mm-hmm. But it was actually started as a master's project at UC Berkeley um, by Kenichi Ueda, who's one of the still to, di- to still to today uh, co-directors of iNaturalist as well.
0: Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um
3: and you know, he really designed it to be more than anything a social network um, that he had moved to California from the East Coast and wanted to learn more about the nature in California, but it's kind of a pain to hike with like you know, your field guides, like your butterflies, your plants, your reptiles, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so he was really looking for a way where he could kind of meet a community who could help him identify the things that he was seeing. Um, and it turned into my naturalist. Um, oh. and that really is like the power of it more than anything is that there's people there that are, you know, sharing and talking about what you found and helping you with your identifications and getting excited about the things that you see. And, um, you know, we have an amazing community of folks, um, here in the Bay Area and beyond as well that we've like met through iNaturalist and now like are considered friends. Um, so it's a great way to kind of meet a community as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, so, so the academy is basically the, uh, the owner controller of the platform. I, yeah. I'm, just try, I'm just trying to understand, do other institutions have access to it? Or do you get all of the data and do the, the data analysis and then make it available to, to others? How does that work?
3: No, the data is totally open to anybody. Um, uh-huh. So we we acquired iNaturalist basically uh, almost 10 years ago now, but mm-hmm. we kept all the same staff. We, they basically just now have staff positions at the academy. I see. Um, but yeah. there's nothing uh, special about the academy having iNaturalist in any way. Like all Anything that we can do with the
2: data, anyone else can do with the data.
1: Uh-huh. Uh, are there other platforms like that in existence?
2: So there are some other more regional platforms um, and other smaller platforms. iNaturalist is the biggest mm-hmm. of its kind, mm-hmm. right? So iNaturalist, on iNaturalist, there are, gosh, almost 100 million observations have wow. been shared from all over the world um, mm-hmm. by by over 2 million people.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And um, it's iNaturalist now is generating like the largest data set of biodiversity, like in the world, it's the be- it's the biggest and most dynamic um, <laughs> place to find out about biodiversity. Um, there are other platforms, Allison can speak to some of the other platforms, but there are um, some other platforms um, throughout the world that people use.
3: Yeah, you know, you can imagine like, there's some that are like, it's all the biodiversity of this country platform. Um, there's also platforms that are like eBird, for example, which is global, right. but it's birds.
0: Yeah, Um, yeah, yeah. yeah.
3: So there are there are other platforms that kind of do similar things, but iNaturalist, like Rebecca was saying, it's it's global and it includes all taxa, which no other platform really is. Mm
1: -hmm. And uh, um, I I saw that you are are doing. um, Where does that question go? Oh, you're engaged (laughs) in a project to document coastal biodiversity, Um, and I you know I guess that's a sort of a connected to iNaturalist.
2: Yeah, that's for it. sure. So Allison, Allison and I run two big scaled projects that mm-hmm. use iNaturalist and this model of organizing people to collect biodiversity like, at a certain time
0: mm-hmm.
2: um, for a certain reason, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. So, so there are two projects. One is called Snapshot Cal Coast, and that's a California coastal project. Mm-hmm. And the other is called City Nature Challenge, which is a global um, project.
1: Let's come back to that one. Okay. Because yeah, I have so a bunch first, of questions yeah. about, about cities. So, so tell yeah. us about so the, we'll, the,
2: the. Let me yeah. tell you first about the, the Snapshot Cal Coast. So, the Snapshot Cal Coast is this is, will be its seventh year. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an, an, an effort of folks up and down the coast to get out and make and share biodiversity observations for mm-hmm. two weeks um, every summer. Mm-hmm. So, we work with partners um, in every coastal county. And we help train them to use iNaturalist, give them other kinds of things they might need like postcards to promote their events, um, stickers to give their participants. We give them a little money for food if they're holding events. Um, But really we all work together Mm -hmm. to create and build a snapshot of coastal biodiversity at a certain time. And -hmm. then we compare year over year how that coastal see, biodiversity okay. is changing. That's why it's called uh-huh. Snapshot Cal Coast, um, And that work is supported by the California Ocean Protection Council. Mm-hmm. Um, they're the folks in the state government that are responsible for managing our coast and oceans. Mm-hmm. And um, so together we gather all these data, um, we connect people to the coast in new and different ways. Everybody does Snapshot Cal Coast differently. Like some folks might take out their you know, whole lab, like professors will take their lab out or you know, the whole volunteer crew from a state park will go out or some people have um, public events. Um, hopefully this year we'll have more public events than we've had the past um, couple of years. And people just go out on their own and make and share observations. And we have a most wanted species list where we at one ask people to look for certain species, species that we know their range is changing, that we're interested in, in tracking those species And also we have a little checklist to make sure that people take pictures of things like those barnacles I was mentioning or sea anemones like, hey, make sure you take pictures of all the things you see. And then those data, we group all together and we're building um, in partnership with the state, we're building what we're calling an early warning and forecasting system for changes along Mm -hmm. the California coast. Mm -hmm. And that's where we model those data and put them together with climate projections and and look and see what can we say about what might be happening uh-huh, along our uh-huh.
1: coast. Do, do you do you focus on specific locations or is this anywhere on the coast?
2: It's anywhere on the coast. Okay. We do have some places that we you know inside MPAs are great, but also outside MPAs are really these are MPAs meaning marine protected marine, areas.
0: Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. Um. So really, though, anywhere on the coast okay. is uh, uh-huh. an important spot. We focus and have focused. A lot on um, rocky and our tidal habitats, mm-hmm. but um, all places are mm-hmm. great. So, mm-hmm. anywhere along the coast and also in bays, so like the San Francisco Bay counts okay. as well for the mm-hmm. San
1: You're listening to Sustainability Now. I'm Ronnie Lipschitz, and I'm speaking with Rebecca Johnson and Allison Young, co directors of the Center for Biodiversity and Community Science at the California Academy of Sciences. You mentioned the City Nature Challenge. Uh, and I see that that's an annual event, right? Can you tell us, yep. you know, what that is and how it works?
3: Yeah, um, you know, so much like Snapchat Cal Coast, um, it's a similar model. Uh, it's one one time a year. Uh, it's four days long, though, unlike Snapchat Cal Coast, it's a couple weeks long. So it's four days. Um, where we follow a similar model. So this is run by us and our colleagues at the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County. So their mm-hmm. community science department, we do this together. Um, and we're kind of like the main organizers. Uh, but what we do is we have local organizers who basically sign up their city for the City Nature Challenge. And we work with those local organizers to, uh, you know, give them support and resources and training. We teach them how to use iNaturalist. We teach them you know, how do you hold a bio blitz event, we give them like posters and social media kits and all these sorts of things. And then they make the city nature challenge happen in their city um, over those four days. Um, And so it's kind of like a it's a big scaled bio blitz. It's it's kind of a competition meets collaboration as well. That, you know, a lot of times cities are trying to win. They're trying to make the most observations. They're trying to find the most species. They're trying to get the most participants involved. Um, but it's also this wonderful thing where it's all these cities around the world all together at the same time, documenting their urban and metro area biodiversity. So it is really focused around cities and the areas around cities.
1: So so you're having people going around and and taking pictures of the things that they see right um does yeah. I mean, does, does this include things that we might not necessarily want to see i mean do you, do you try to document let's just say rats <laughs>
3: um, yeah i mean the, the main thing that we're trying to document are wild species so things that were you know not like necessarily not the plants domestic- the plants that you've planted in your backyard yeah, yeah, but sure, sure the weeds the weeds that are growing up in between them um, hundred percent right. you know so it's it is really about understanding uh the nature that's all around us in our cities and around our cities as well we're, regardless of if we consider them a good in quotes species or not or something that we're happy to see or ne- sometimes maybe not as happy to see
1: Uh-huh okay okay um you know i'm i, I i've been interested in in urban ecology for for a long time and a lot of people regard cities as places outside of nature. I mean, there really are transformed landscapes. And so this is a little bit different. And, and I was wondering if you could talk about how cities are enmeshed with species biodiversity and ecosystems and maybe what role they play. I mean, how important are they you know, in terms of global biodiversity and, and the like?
3: Uh- yeah, I'll, I can start and then let Rebecca chime in. Um, yeah, you know, we do see cities as really important. Obviously, they are very altered landscapes, um, but there is still nature in them and nature all around them as well. And especially as we think about, um, you know, making sure that we have things like wildlife corridors and ways for uh, organisms to move through cities, understanding the biodiversity that we have in cities is a really key thing to do. So thinking about, you know, not cities as like that blank spot on the map that has like no nature at all, but actually how can we, uh, you know, not only, you know, understand the nature that's already in here, but potentially even improve cities to make them better places um, for nature or for places that nature can move through more easily as well. You know, the City Nature Challenge is really about getting people to think about the fact that there is nature in their cities. Um, and that it's not that they have to, you know, like drive out to Yosemite to, to be in nature, that it is all around us. And that um, it really gives people a chance to kind of actually see how much biodiversity um, is truly in cities. Um, Rebecca, I don't know if you had more you wanted to add.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great answer. I think that, you know, there's another thing that's really important about nature in cities. Um, you know, over 50% of the people in the world live in cities or right. urbanized environments, yeah. right? Yeah. So, um, and those are very altered places. I mean, everywhere on the planet's altered in some right. way, but, yeah. you know, we live, I, I'm talking to you from San Francisco, so I'm sitting in the city right now, and you know, um, the nature that's found here is like extra precious, right? These like native, remnant native areas because they are so rare. And the I feel like we have an extra responsibility to protect those places um, for nature, but then also for us, for people that live in cities, so we can experience the amazing biodiversity of our place just by walking outside of our front doors, right? Like Allison said. To know that you don't have to go far to find that nature is really important. I mean, for me, just to like be connected to my place. There are also, you know, there's lots and lots of evidence that spending time in nature is very important for your mental and physical mm-hmm. well-being.
0: Mm-hmm. And that
2: just walking in nature or an open space, you know, lowers your cortisol levels. <laughs> you know, just spending 20 min- minutes in an open um, or natural space. Um, important for everyone and it's especially important for people that are living in cities right who don't have access to that as easily so to make sure that we have more green spaces and more nature is important for the people that live in cities but also for managing things like climate change and um heat urban heat islands and other and sea level rise and all these other things that are coming to cities, whether they're here here now and coming, you know, um, improving and restoring nature in cities and incorporating nature-based solutions into our cities can help mitigate some of those challenges of climate change and also give people the benefits of being surrounded by nature, right? The physical and spiritual benefits. And those are things that we can and should be doing in our cities.
1: Uh, you, met, you mentioned that you know, more than half of the world's people live in cities, right? And so cities yeah, are major yeah. con- contributors now to emissions, um, yeah. right? That are that are driving climate change. Um, I mean, do, are you looking at the impacts of of climate change on nature in cities? Well, that, one
0: that, of the that things
2: that were, yeah. Yeah, and it's a really, really great question. So one of the things, um, Allison and I are leading a new academy initiative that's called Uh Thriving California Uh that's looking at nature and people in California and how can we use our expertise together with the expertise of all Californians um, to help build a thriving California for nature and people. Like this is what we're doing together. I'm planning to do together. And one of the things that we know through that that work is that if we collect all these data together about where plants and animals are found now in all the ways that we just described um, and add that together with what we know about past biodiversity in California um, and the projected climate change that, that we know is coming, we can make plans and forecast future changes that will help, like we can use that information to help make better decisions for people and nature in cities, in suburbs, in rural areas, you know, in California, we have all of those things like really, really close together. Right. So, so we know that these kinds of data about where plants and animals are found are super critical to making decisions about so many things in California. You know, our state is super, is just now investing, um, in, something called the 30 by 30 effort, which is protecting 30% of California's um, land and coastal waters for biodiversity by 2030. Mm -hmm. So our state is funding this effort, but in order to make decisions about how to do that best, we need to know where plants and animals are now and where they're gonna be in the future. And together we can collect that data in a way that no one else can,
0: Mm -hmm. right? All Californians.
2: Mm -hmm together can do that and one of one of the parts of that is knowing where nature is in cities now and understanding how we can plan best for a changing climate to make our cities better for us and for nature
1: mhm mm-hmm. um are you are any of these projects that you're you're running the you know with the data collection are you having people try to document any of these changes or how long have you, has iNaturalist been going on?
3: Uh, iNaturalist uh, has been running now for gosh, like 13, 14 years.
1: But, but in the sense of, you know, you're accumulating data and then, right. How long have you been running it? Has Academy uh, been running it basically?
3: Well, so we've been running our, our community science program since about 2012, and I oh, okay. came to the academy uh, around 2013.
1: Okay, so so are you um, are you trying to use that kind of data to to document changes changes resulting from climate change on urban ecology, or or you know have have you done anything like that? I, I you know again there's this whole sort of tension right between where people live and and especially at the urban rural interface, right? Which is of course where the the fires break out to a large degree. But I mean, are, are you able to use that sort of chronological data to actually start to see these kinds of changes in more or less real time?
3: Yeah, you know, um you definitely can using iNaturalist data see things um you know because it, it's it's all about organisms you can definitely see things like uh shifts in species distributions like species whose ranges are changing due to climate change or most likely due to climate change things like that you know so um, that that's the type of information that we definitely are already looking at on iNaturalist um and that it's not just us it's like you know scientists and people all over over the world are using iNat data for things like this as well it's definitely something um that we're interested in doing more of especially as Rebecca said as we like really dive into this new this thriving California initiative is really understanding um Like, what can we extract not only from iNaturalist data, but then from our historic collections together. So not Mm -hmm. only are we getting a picture Mm -hmm. of the last, you know, 12 years that iNaturalist has really been up and running, you know, but also using that historic perspective to really understand the change that's already occurred and those drivers of those changes, you know, like, why is the species moving? Is it because, you know, the Daytime temperatures are too warm for them, and so they're moving north, or is it because water resources are really important to this species and they're trying to follow, you know, due to drought in California, they're changing their ranges, things like that. And so, getting that historic perspective is really going to help in this uh, basically, like thinking about not only what changes are happening, but why, what are those main drivers of change of those changes? Not just like climate change as a whole, but like what are those specific things that are really um, affecting species.
1: I'm Ronnie Lipschitz, and I'm speaking with Rebecca Johnson and Allison Young, co-directors of the Center for Biodiversity and Community Science at the California Academy of Sciences. Can you talk a bit about opportunistic species in cities and and wildlife that's moving in? You know, are we, I live on the UC Santa Cruz campus basically, and we we actually had a coyote walk through our backyard the other day. Um, I don't know what it, exactly it was doing, but we have coyotes coming through here, you know, but we're, we're really at that interface, not downtown Santa Cruz, but you know, wh- what's going on and why is it happening?
2: Yeah. I think coyotes are kind of the poster children for yeah. um, species yeah. moving into cities, right? I mean, in San Francisco, we have a very healthy population of of coyotes. Like I can hear them from my house sometimes and I live, huh. I don't live in, you know, I live on a city street, right? Um, and so, you know, I think there are a lot of coyotes are very adapted to human um, environments, just mm-hmm. like raccoons, mm-hmm. right? Like they do pretty well when humans are around same with squirrels. <laughs> um, you know, there, there are a lot of species that, that thrive with humans. And I think, I mean, I'm not an expert in coyotes or these um, mammals yeah. moving, moving in. If you want to have some folks talk about coyotes, you should ask Chris Shell from um, UC Berkeley and his lab. They study urban coyotes and urban yeah. wildlife. Um, they are awesome group of folks. Um, but, you know, we've done a lot of work here in the city and other places to restore these natural habitats, right? We've done great work to, you know, the Presidio now just a few, you know, a mile from my house is an amazing, huge open natural area. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Um, and there are lots of places for coyotes to make a living, um, because we've done a good job of protecting other nature, um, which is great, right, in many ways. I mean, there, it does lead to some human-wildlife conflict. Um, generally, if you leave them alone, there's not as much conflict. Um, but there are lots of other species that that are doing well in cities, and there are also lots of folks working to bring species back into cities that have been lost, like our colleagues in the Presidio have brought back, you know, butterflies and um, other species that are really important for the these are still urban areas, but really important for the ecosystem functioning. Mm -hmm. Um, And they're doing great things to kind of restore some of that functioning and these amazing species that used to be found here, but were extirpated, which means like they exist other places, but not in the city, but were extirpated because of human development. And so now we're bringing them back because we have the infrastructure, like the plant, basically the plant and water infrastructure to be able to support them
1: you're at the Academy, the Academy, as you say, is a museum. And, you know, lots of people coming through lots of children coming through. Do you do exhibits about the kind of community science that you, you know, you oversee? And what do those exhibits look like?
3: Yeah, you know, we have um, right now, kind of our community science work is is kind of scattered throughout the Academy, right? Because it is something that you can do almost anywhere, Mm -hmm. the type of community science work that we're doing. And so, um, you know, we have uh, in like our Color of Life exhibit right now, stuff about how you can get involved in taking photos and like thinking about, uh, you know, where, where plants and animals are in the world. Uh, we have some stuff, uh, some information about our community science program over in our Giants of Land and Sea, which is kind of focused on California as well. Um, and over there, it's, it's actually specifically about like certain species in California that we're really interested, that we'd love people to go and document and things like that. Um, we are really excited, though, as part of uh, this new uh, Thriving California initiative that Rebecca described earlier, that we're actually going to be transforming that space that right now ha- is is generally about California, actually into kind of a California Hall.
2: Mm-hmm. And what we
3: really want to do there is because so much of this initiative is about the data that everybody is collecting, um, that you know, that all Californians and people who visit California, the the data that they collect and how it's actually being used to help. Make California a better place. Mm-hmm. Um, that we're really excited to actually have like a very dedicated space. Hopefully, in that in that exhibit, um, as it's um, being updated over the next, gosh, like four or five years, um, mm-hmm. that will actually kind of be highlighting all those observations that people are making. So that hopefully, you know, if you if you're out there and you're documenting something in your backyard, you can come to the academy and actually like see that as part of an exhibit. Um, so something probably something more digital and interactive. Um, but we are really excited about like putting it in a more central place um, to really highlight the fact that this type of information can really only be collected by everybody like but it's, it's really everybody doing it that's actually giving us this picture of, of biodiversity in California and beyond. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Do, do you do you target any of your programs community science programs specifically to kids.
2: We work closely. We do have a whole after-school program at the academy that um, uses community science as like a platform to teach science and to help kids learn like scientific methods of scientific inquiry and to Mm -hmm. do science themselves. Mm -hmm. And that's called the Science Action Club. And um, they do a bunch of community science with mostly um, middle school um, youth. And Allison and I, um, you know, just are finishing up a grant that we had with some colleagues at the Natural History Museum in London and the L.A. County Natural History Museum to um, understand how, like, youth learning through Natural History Museum, citizen and community science. Mm
0: -hmm. And so we've done
2: Mm -hmm. a lot of work to think about what are the best ways to design programs and what are the best ways to deliver programs that lead to learning outcomes for students. And also what's called environmental science agency, which is like thinking that knowing and learning that you can make a difference in your life um, with through the, through the things that you've learned. And um, so we've done that work to help design our programs to lead to those outcomes. But most of the programs that we deliver are for youth and their families, like for families and sometimes there are kids there.
1: Yeah, no, I would, I would think that it would, it would offer, you know, a great opportunity because there's so much in the way of, of classes and groups and organizations for children who are taking kids out, right, um, and, you know, it's a, it's a whole sort of set of data. I mean, that you could collect, I, you know, I don't know if they have, I don't know who has smartphones these days. Right. You know, it's, it seems, Basically, get, it
3: seems like everybody, <laughs> it seems like
1: everybody. Right. But yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, th- there's a whole untapped audience or reservoir, I guess. And
3: yeah. And are you, you thinking know, I- about that? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, for sure. I mean, and, and definitely, like, um, oftentimes, especially in these, like, big scaled projects that we run, like the City Nature Challenge and Snapshot Coast, there are teachers who are like, I'm taking my class out for this, and we're going to uh-huh. go make, make and share observations. Um, you know, so we definitely have, especially for the City Nature Challenge, we actually have a whole education toolkit that's designed for educators, like, literally from K all the way through college mm-hmm, age mm-hmm. to do this sort of work with the, with their class. Um, I'll also say as well that iNaturalist actually has developed an app that's actually targeted for uh, youth that are 12 and under technically to have an iNaturalist account because it shares your location. You're supposed to be 13 years old or older or have your parents' permission. So there's an app called Seek by iNaturalist, which actually is designed to, it's kind of, it's self-contained. You know, it all stays in your phone, so you're not sharing information about where you are unless you authorize it to do it. Um, But it basically is designed to actually teach youth like about observing, Mm -hmm. like like, how close do you need to get before it can identify that thing that you're looking at. And it gives you like challenges based on where you are. You know, it says like, these are the 10 most observed things in your city or in your neighborhood. Like, can Mm -hmm. you go find them? you know, and you get badges mm. as you find them. So, uh-huh. Uh-huh. you know, it is kind of targeted towards youth um, and really kind of builds their observational skills and makes mm-hmm. them mm-hmm. good observers and good mm-hmm. photo takers of things um, mm-hmm. until they're ready to be on iNaturalist.
1: Well, listen, we're, we're almost at the end of our, uh, our time together. And so I'm wondering if, if you can maybe say something about where listeners can go to learn more about community science and to sign on to your project.
2: Yeah. So there are a couple of places to go. You can go to our website and just, if you just Google community science at at Cal Academy, you'll find it. Um, Mm -hmm. And you can learn about all of these programs that we've talked about today um, and upcoming events, especially for snapshot Cal coast. So that Mm -hmm. happens in June. So June Uh 13th to July 4th this year. And so we, and our partners will have events up and down the coast. So wherever Mm -hmm. folks are listening from, if they're especially in Santa Cruz, um, you can get out to the coast um, with some local events. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You can also just go to iNaturalist and and get yourself a login. Um, iNaturalist works on, it's an app on your phone, but it's also an amazing website where Mm -hmm. you can dig in and um, learn more about nature all around you. Um, And I would say like, you know, we've done a lot of talking about you know, taking pictures and using your smartphone and using apps um, in nature. But really, you know, the whole goal of our program, besides collecting data to do good science and conservation, is to encourage people to be curious and get outside and pay attention to nature, whether Mm -hmm. you're a kid or an adult. Um, And so when I'm out with my smartphone, I I use it as a camera. (laughs) Like, I don't, you know, use the app so much outside. I use it as a camera. And so, you know. I would encourage people to just get out and pay attention to all of the things that are on, you know, maybe your favorite trail, like think about that trail differently and try to document, you know, all the plants that you can see, how many Mm -hmm. different species of plants can you see on your trail Mm -hmm. and take pictures of those and then upload them when you get back. And, and if you do that all the time, you start learning about nature, about changes through time, about seasonality, um, and you start learning more and more and, we've talked a lot about data today. Like that's really the dual goal yeah, of all sure. the work that we do is people, you know, being more connected to nature and observing more carefully and um, just understanding how our planet works more. Um, and that's one of the ways to do that is by paying more attention.
1: Well, Rebecca Johnson and Allison Young, thank you for being my guests on Sustainability Now.
2: Thank you so much for having Thanks us. Thanks for having us. Thank okay. you.
1: And I look forward to getting to the Academy and seeing what you've got there. Now I have a reason to go. So thanks for listening, and thanks for all the staff and volunteers who make KSQD your community radio station. And so until next every other Sunday, sustainability now. I'm a citizen.